0: Well, good morning, Kent Cove. Good morning. Hey, before we get into the word this morning, I want to take a moment, a little unscheduled uh, moment, pastoral privilege, if you will. I want to um, just take a moment and recognize that some of our dear friends uh, are leaving us this week, and, uh, and we want to just honor them. Eric and Kathy Easterbrook will be moving to Indiana. Uh, to care for Kathy's aging parents. Um, Eric has been church chair, served in various leadership roles. Kathy is running our slides right now and she's served in various roles as well over the years. And we just wanna honor uh, their um, contribution to us as a community and to ask God's blessing on them as they go. So if you would join me in prayer, uh, I would love to pray for them. Gracious God. Uh, we thank you for Eric and Kathy for their many years of service to Kent Cove and what they mean to us as friends and brother and sister. And so, God, we ask that you would bless them as they go, that, um, that as they go to care for aging parents, that you would give them everything they need uh, in order to do that well. Uh, God, may they know that they will be missed and that they are a treasured part of this community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, we continue our series called Earthy Spirituality. This is a series about the life of King David, and, it, and in it, we are talking about how life is real life. It's, it's raw, it's unfiltered, and David's life is very, um, shall we say, incarnate. It's very embodied, and today, we get into it. Today, we hit the part of the story that is challenging and it gets really gritty and so um, just a little warning for you there we're going to talk about some stuff my approach to the scriptures as your pastor is that when the scriptures name something then we name it we do not pretend we don't use um, you know language that dresses it up and makes it less challenging we dive in and we allow god's spirit to challenge us with what's there in the text. And so this morning we're reading from Second Samuel 11, beginning in verse one. We're gonna read through verse 15. The sermon is based on 11 and 12, the whole chapter. So if you want a wider context, you can go and read those later. 2 Samuel 11 begins this way. In the spring, At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, "'Send me Uriah the Hittite.' And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, "'Go down to your house and wash your feet.' So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space where heaven and earth meet. Amen. So the story that we reach this morning as we look at this story of David and Bathsheba is really in a lot of ways the beginning of the end for David's kingdom. This episode begins the unraveling. From this point on, David's life, his kingship, his family life becomes a mess. And uh, the repercussions and the echoes of this act and what it means play out throughout the rest of David's life. And as we said, it is messy and it's earthy and it's real. It is perhaps one of the most well-known stories in human history. I want to think about this in a number of different ways this morning, but I want to focus especially on the idea or what we see in this story and in the, in the chapters that um, come after that with the prophet Nathan and think about what it means to speak truth to power. The scriptures are filled with examples of people willing to be used by God to speak truth to power. People who stand with integrity without regard for the possible negative consequences for themselves. The list includes, and this is not exhaustive, but just some that came to me off the top of my head. The list includes Moses, all the prophets, Jesus, the Apostle Paul. A few weeks ago, we saw the wisdom of Abigail and her willingness to speak the truth to power to David. History is filled with Christians who were willing to do this dangerous work as well. We celebrate and remember witnesses and names like Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Wilberforce, King, to name just a tiny sample of people who stood and witnessed to God's justice and mercy and righteousness at great cost to themselves. As we mentioned, the story of David and Bathsheba is probably One of the best known stories in human history. And within that story, we see two men who in different ways, God uses to speak truth to power. Now, before we get into the particulars of the story, I want you to remember that back at the beginning, when we talked about about the prophet Samuel and his warnings to the nation of Israel about wanting a king. Remember these? Basically what Samuel said to the nation of Israel is that you think you want a king, but what you need to understand is that kings take what they want. Sound sound like something that's about to come true? Kings take what they want. They do what they will. Right? And so we come to this part of the story where David is at the height of his power. He has brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He has established Jerusalem as the capital of uh, his kingdom. His power is great and this story demonstrates that it has infected his soul. Bad habits and poor practices have set in. David has lost touch with himself and God. Now I want to walk through uh, this story and just show you um, five or six opportunities that David has to make different choices. How do we know that David's soul is infected, that he's been taken over by bad habits and poor practices? Well, it says it right at the beginning of this episode in verse 1. It says, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Actually, even before that, in verse one, it it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. David didn't go, David sent. David's too powerful. David has too much to do. David has too many responsibilities. He can't go off to war, he has to stay at the palace. Then we go on to verse two and we find out that one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof. Why is he still in bed in the evening? Why is he in the palace in the springtime? So many questions. David has lost his way. And so he's in the palace and he walks around the roof and the text tells us that he sees a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop. So opportunity one that David missed to make different choices is that he's in Jerusalem. He's in the palace. He's not doing what kings do. He's not leading his army, right? He's walking about like he's lost purpose and he sees Bathsheba and sends someone to find out about her. Okay, now this is about to to get real because this is a very problematic verse for David. And this is one of those places where we have a Sunday school memory of this story, and then we have the actual story in the text. They're two very different things, okay? So, I wanna talk about Bathsheba for a minute because this is opportunity number two for David. In my humble opinion, David has to know who Bathsheba is. In fact, I would argue there is absolutely no way that David doesn't know who Bathsheba is. Even if when he's wandering around on his palace rooftop and he sees uh, Bathsheba bathing and just sees a beautiful woman and sends to find out about her, as soon as he heard her name, he knew who she was. Why? Because the text tells us a couple of things. The first thing is, is that uh, she is named as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. There are only 37 of them. There are only 37 of these elite warriors in David's army. So to imagine that David does not know that Bathsheba is Uriah's wife is nonsense to me. Now, it also mentions, and here's a secondary thing that that we could explore, we're not going to this morning, but isn't it interesting that uh, the text names Uriah's ethnicity. Some posit that this um, maybe leads David to think that because Uriah the Hittite is less than, is lesser than, is other than Israelite, that he can take whatever he wants. No way to know that for sure, but the text is very clear in naming that he is not an Israelite by birth. That's issue number one. The second issue is that the text also names not just Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, but Eliam, her father. Now, this is where it gets even more more bad news, bad press for David. Eliam is also one of David's mighty men. So not only is Bathsheba the wife of one of David's mighty men, she is the daughter of one of David's mighty men. And if that wasn't bad enough, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors. Okay? So are you getting a picture here? This is the real version of the story, not the Sunday school version of the story, because the Sunday school version of the story that we learned goes something like this. David um, saw Bathsheba. She was bathing on the roof. And there's always this kind of undertone that somehow Bathsheba was complicit in seducing David, that this is about adultery. Right? Friends, this is not about adultery, in my opinion. Because the language in the text, this is opportunity number three, is that David takes Bathsheba. He sends his men to retrieve her. Now remember, you can make the argument that Bathsheba was tempting him somehow, that she was complicit, but it doesn't really hold up. Because Bathsheba has no agency, she has no protection, her husband is off to war, her father is off to war, And let's be honest to say that who her husband and her father were should have been enough to protect her. This is not adultery. This is rape, pure and simple. David takes what he wants because he can, because he's king. Bathsheba has no agency. Some commentators make the argument that she, because of the way she responds in seeking to uh, make sure that Solomon gets on the throne, that, that she was you know, involved. I think it's a weak argument. I think uh, you can also make the argument that Bathsheba's um, kind of maneuvering later in life is simply her making the best of a situation. She's not a stupid woman. She sees the writing on the wall. And it also should not escape our notice that Nathan, as he, if you read the story as you go on, when you get to that part where David is dying and he's about to name a successor, the prophet Nathan, who we'll talk about in a minute, comes alongside Bathsheba and serves as her advocate and Solomon's advocate and ensures that he gets on the throne, right? So this is a very complicated story but the idea that Bathsheba was somehow complicit, that she somehow tempted, just doesn't wash with what we know in the text. So, so David's opportunity number three is sending the men to retrieve her, right? He could have stopped as soon as he heard the name. You know, any, any normal person, really, any person with, who's not completely lost on the inside, as David apparently is in this moment, hears the name and recognizes, oh, uh, uh, what am I thinking? But that's not what David does. Which brings us to opportunity number four. Opportunity number four is uh, David takes what he wants, Bathsheba is sent home, and she sends a message to david notice there's no threat there's no um it's just three simple words really i am pregnant which kicks everything into a whole different ap- or, um, stratosphere right another thing it's important to note the re- there's a that per- parenthetical statement in the text that Bathsheba was cleansing herself from her monthly uncleanness is important because if it's not enough to know that Uriah's off at war, it's also important to recognize that uh, the text is telling us she was not pregnant when she went to David or when she was taken by David more accurately. So David at this point sees his career dissipation light blinking on the dashboard. And so he starts to come up with a plan. And he sends for Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. Uriah not an Israelite by birth. And at this point we see the first man of integrity in the story. Because at this point David has lost his integrity. Uriah comes so what do we know about Uriah? Well, the text tells us that he's a Hittite, which means he's not an Israelite by birth, but by choice. We know that he's a mighty, he's one of David's mighty men, which means he's, a, um, he's uh, an elite warrior, and he lives, uh, <laughs> makes me think of uh, Jack Nicholson and a few good men, I know that dates me, but you know, there's the scene where he says, we live by a code, right? That's what warriors do, they live by a code. So when Uriah comes and David says, hey, why don't you go on down to your house and wash your feet? That's in Hebrew, there's a kind of a um, double entendre there. And Uriah's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. The ark is in the field. My men are in the field. Your men are in the field. My commander's in the field. I'll sleep by the gate. I'm not going home. Because that's not what warriors do now anybody who's lived apart from your spouse for any length of time kudos to that right I mean this guy is serious he's not messing around even after a second shall we say beverage enhanced attempt by David to get Uriah to go down to his house the text tells us that David got Uriah drunk and tried to and sent him down to the house Still doesn't go. Uriah serves at this point and highlights the depth to which David has sunk. Uriah is operating with complete integrity and David has sunk lower than we could have ever imagined. And that's opportunity number four. Here come opportunities number five and six. And I'm lumping these together. Really, you could argue they're one big opportunity. But uh, then uh, we have David sits down and he writes orders. And then he sends the orders. Right? How many of you have ever written an email and then thought, you know what? Bad idea. Delete. Right? Not David. David writes the email and he, hit, and he hits Send. So, so then, of course, the, the, as you go through the story, the, the orders were that Uriah be, be sent and isolated at the front. The rest of the, peop, the men pulled back so that Uriah would be killed. Now, the report that comes back to David is that not only is Uriah killed, but sev- several other, we don't really know how many, Israelite men were killed at the same time. And so this is rock bottom, verse 25, right? Because David sends word then to Joab, the text tells us, that David says in verse 25, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. David doesn't just let things go. He's cavalier about it. So, either at this point, David really is this callous that he simply says, Well, you know, the sword devours one as well as another. You win some, you lose some. No big deal. So, he's either trying to convince himself of that, which I suppose is possible, or he literally does not care because at this point he thinks he's won. So verse 25 highlights the level to which David has sunk. And then um, in verse 27, the narrator makes it clear that this isn't going to fly. Verse 27 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Can you say understatement? The word for displeased here means evil. David had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Uriah in his own way has spoken truth to power because he stood his ground with integrity and did not do as the king asked, even though that would have been way easier. Uriah the Hittite shows the outsider has shown himself at least at this point in history to stand head and shoulders above King David. Now, as we move forward in the story, the story moves on, and we have Nathan appear, the prophet Nathan, who has the courage to go before a king at the height of his power, knowing that this king has just committed two violent sins the taking of Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Uriah and the other men that died with him all to cover up his sin. And the text says this. I'm going to re- read this part. This is from Second Samuel, beginning at the end of 11. It says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And we know that this parable sinks in and strikes David deep in his heart and he repents. But we also know as we we will explore as we continue through this story, That his house is never the same again. And it begins a cascade of dysfunction and pain and awful behavior. But at this point, David finally listens and most importantly, he repents. He repents. The rest of the consequences are dire. David is forgiven, but the consequences continue to play out. And the rest of David's story is filled with brokenness and dysfunction that almost defy description. The behavior of David in this instance and the behavior of David's family as, we, as you move forward through the rest of David's sto- story makes the worst behavior of any of our families most likely pale by comparison. That's how bad it gets. But here's the good news. The good news is that David was forgiven. We do not serve a God who whitewashes things. We do not serve a God who does not name the hard stuff. We do not serve a God who does not tell the truth in the midst of brokenness, or dress it up with euphemisms. We serve a God who brings light to the darkness, who brings grace and healing to the brokenness, who brings restoration to those who have wandered away. Maybe you are here this morning, and you have been resisting God's call to come home because of some sin that you don't think God can handle, that you don't think God can forgive. Friend, if God can forgive David, you can be forgiven. Jesus, the son of David, died for you, and scripture assures us that there is nothing, no thing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So come home today. Do not allow your worst moments to rob you of a life of grace and forgiveness that is freely offered in Christ. We are about to come to the Lord's table. We here in the Covenant Church, we celebrate what is called an open table. The table is open to all that Jesus invites. If you find yourself here this morning and you have been wandering far from God, This table represents an opportunity for you to come home to Jesus. He invites you to come to say and to confess your sin and to ask for his cleansing and forgiveness. And he will freely give it. Brothers and sisters, come home. Please join me in prayer.